Hey guys, and welcome to season three of the Us People podcast. I'm your host, Savio Rox, and in this season, I get to make my guests laugh, cry, and even make them think about life a little differently with the questions I fire over to them, which digs into their lives and professions a little differently. We even had a chance to change up the intro, giving you a fresh new sound. I look forward to sharing season three of the Us People podcast with you. Let's go. Hi, my name is Sylvia True. I'm the author of Where Madness Lies. And you're listening to the Us People podcast with the fabulous Savia Rocks. Hey guys, and welcome to another episode of the Ask People Podcast. I'm your host, Savvy Rocks, and today I've got the lovely Sylvia True here with me, who is an author of the book Where Madness Lies, which is a great title, and that's what captured me completely before I even started reading the book. Sylvia, thank you so much for coming on the Ask People Podcast. How are you? Oh, I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. No, you're more than welcome. So I want to get straight into knowing about who you are. Sylvia, first of all, before we even digulge into the book and get really, because like I said, even before we started recording, I said I had a lot of compassion reading your book. But before I let the listeners understand what the book is about, could you please tell me a little bit about yourself of where you grew up and how that influenced you as a person to be the person who you are today? Sure. So I was sort of a complicated um, backstory, I guess. Both of my parents were German. They lived in Frankfurt and they both came from Jewish families and they both fled Frankfurt. And my mother's family fled to Switzerland and my father's family fled to England. And they met later in London. My mother was a Swiss national champion skater and she was training in England. Yep. And so they met and they married. They lived in England for a few years. My father was a theoretical nuclear physicist. And then he had a sabbatical in America. So we moved to the, we moved to the States um, when I was about five. We moved back and forth a couple of different times. And uh, yet I ended up mostly growing up in Chicago, but now I'm in Boston in Massachusetts where I've lived here for about 30 years. Wow. And I, I'm a chemistry teacher and head of the science department. And um, I write as well. So I I feel very fortunate. I have two amazing daughters and three absolutely dazzling grandchildren. Oh, cool. Yeah. So despite, I know we haven't spoken about it yet, but despite everything that has happened, your family must be really important to you. Can you explain a little bit more about how family is important to you? And growing up, how have you let your culture and what's happened to your family in generations before you, how have you let that, how have you let your family know that having a family and your culture is important no matter where you are in the world? Well, that's a, that's a great and complicated question. Yeah. Um, So, and it actually does tie very closely to the book because the book is based on my family story. It's, it's fictionalized in parts, partly because I had to write about the point of view of my grandmother and I can't write a memoir from her because I'm not her. Um, But my family and my culture really pretty much created who I am today and how I grew up in the household I grew up in and the things that were said and that weren't said in the house were very, very influential to me. So for example, um, there was a lot of fear and secrecy. And I think a lot of families have secrets. I mean, all different kinds of secrets. And I was a sensitive child, which I often, you know, got in trouble for being like, you're too sensitive, pull up your socks. You shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't let these things affect you. But I felt the aura of secrecy and I felt the fear and I just thought there was something wrong with me. And 
that has a lot to do with the book because in my 20s, I was very depressed. In fact, I would say that I suffered from depression most of my life. But that was also something that was absolutely not allowed in our family. And that had to do with the Nazis and what my mother's family went through. So there are all these tie-ins. Anyway, so in my 20s, I was really struggling. I couldn't drive anymore. I was too anxious. You know, the grocery store terrified me. And I didn't know what to do. And I think around 24, I felt like I was on a tightrope all the time, just ready to fall off. And I thought, oh, I know how to fix this. I'll have a baby. Well, I mean, it was great to have a baby, but it wasn't the best idea to fix depression. So on top of a regular depression, I had postpartum depression. And I ended up in a mental hospital, which was the absolute best lesson of my life and best education. And during my time in that hospital, um, initially, my mother and grandmother actually were too terrified to even speak to me. But after a short time, they did come and visit me and slowly revealed the secrets in the past that I knew I had felt, but I didn't know what they were. And that was was just an incredible gift because when I first went into the hospital, you know, the doctors say, is there any mental illness in your family? And I, I would say, no, absolutely not. Everybody's perfect except for me. You know, I'm the black sheep. They're all perfect. But when my mother and grandmother revealed this secret past of mental illness that had happened in Nazi Germany and the fear, especially my grandmother, the fear that she had lived with and the loss, the tragedy that she had lived with. It made me understand her. And it also made me not feel so alone. And from that experience, we were able to really grow closer as a family. And I think that was the most beautiful thing of all, because we finally, and I certainly finally learned to have true empathy for my grandmother. And, you know, once you have that kind of empathy, you can go to a place of love and move out of a place of fear. So I think that was a, a long answer. I love it. <laughs> Don't ever feel that any answer you give me is long. It's an explanation of your life. And there is always somebody in the world that can learn something from your answer. Right. Um, Thank you. No, you're welcome. My next one for you is, can you define yourself as a person? Who do you see when you look in the mirror? And what does your reflection say back to you emotionally? But on the reverse of this question, have you ever looked in the mirror and not recognized the person staring back at you? What a, that's another great question. Um, when I, you know, I don't always like what I see in the mirror, but that's just a, sometimes I'm just simply talking about the outside pieces, right? right. You know, the hair isn't right or what have you. But I think mostly what I see is somebody who's very curious. And for me, that's, that's been so important. And again, that didn't really happen until I struggled with depression and got over it. And then I began to see the world completely differently and myself completely differently because I suddenly wasn't afraid to start asking questions. And I think like you, who asks me, no. Um, yeah, I, I, I love to ask questions. I love to learn about all sorts of things. Yes, absolutely intellectual things, but also I'm very curious about people. So writing is a great match for me in that, you know, with a good story, you have to understand your characters and their relationships. So you have to really get into the people, but you also have to know the history in this case and all of that. So it's just it's fun. I just get to ask questions of myself and I'm a teacher. So that puts me in a great position because I try to teach my students all the time. Like there's really nothing more than more important than being curious. So, and I tell them also, you know, only a closed mind is certain. So yes, you have to stay open-minded. You know, one thing I admire about teachers is that teachers have inspired so many people to do so many great things in the world and become great people. 
So I have a lot of admiration for you, even before we haven't even touched the surface of the interview, but that's just me complimenting you for you wanting to be a teacher. Thank you. How did your journey begin in writing? Because writing is an emotional feeling. You talk about, obviously, you had a feeling that something was wrong or right, and you thought everyone was perfect and you was the one that had something wrong with you. But at the same time, did you feel that you had a spiritual connection to something within the world that wanted to reveal something to you? But until you went into a place that it wasn't necessarily a bad place. I believe it was a place of learning, of you coping with who you were as a person and understanding who you were as a person. What did you learn and how did you evolve as a person? I think think that I really truly learned the power of being open. And I think that that is another huge theme in the book, but it's also just by putting a book out there, you have to be open. And this book has a lot of personal history. So I think I was so closed um, and frightened really until, you know, I had the chance to go to McLean, which was a huge, by far the best education of my life. Um, And you know, since then, I've sort of been on a crusade of openness and honesty. It, it, it's done amazing things for my family. Uh, raising my daughters in that kind of environment, I think, was so important for me and for them. I didn't want them to grow up in an environment of fear and shame. And if they felt anxious or depressed or if something was wrong, you know, I didn't want them to hide it. You know, I didn't want them to pretend. I wanted them to be able to talk about it. I mean, when my oldest daughter, was around 14 or 15. She wasn't the easiest of teenagers. And she was also, you know, she was showing signs of depression. And, you know, I I didn't tell her to pull up her socks or just pretend and fake it till you make it kind of thing. And, you know, instead I brought her to a therapist and a psychiatrist and a psychic. So I covered all the bases and I mean, I wanted to help her and I did. And both my daughters who have varying degrees of depression and anxiety and are very, very productive, young, independent, strong women. They don't have the shame that I had growing up. And that to me is the most beautiful thing I've done in my life, I think. Oh, see, that's so nice to hear. Oh, thank you. (laughs) That is so nice to hear. Why do you feel that your mother and your grandmother hid so much away from you? I feel like they didn't necessarily, do you think that you still would have gone into like a mental hospital or or somewhere to help you if your mother and your grandmother had told you the past of what's happened to them and the generations before? Do you think that it would have helped you? Why did it take them so long to tell you? Yeah. So I think for them, there is a tremendous amount of fear and probably shame as well. Um, they would, if I hadn't gone into a mental hospital, they would have never shared that secret. If they had, you know, if it had been something that the family discussed openly, that would have meant the family had to discuss mental illness openly and depression openly. And that, that was not done in my family when I was growing up. So I think had they been open about it, Yes, I probably still would have had a depression. I think that part of my depression is absolutely genetic. So, but there, I would have been able to get help. You know what I mean? It wouldn't have gone on until, you know, I totally cracked and landed in a mental hospital. So I do think it it would have changed the path. I would not want to, when, you know, when you look back at your life, you know, I look back do I wish it would have happened differently? No. I mean, it happened the way it happened. So I could learn what I learned. I met my very best friend in the mental hospital. I mean, we were so close. So, you know, I got this, you know, I got to write a, write a great book from it. So, you know, you look at it and you're like, well, it happened the way it was supposed to happen. Exactly. So this is where I want you to break down the book 
Okay. Um, the reason why is because I feel like we've spoken so much about, we've spoken about you a bit about your family. So I'm sure people are intrigued to know more about your book now. So first of all, the title, Where Madness Lies Itself. I understand, I understand where the title has come from, possibly. But could you break down for us where the title has come from, but also break down from the beginning of when you started writing the book to the journey of you writing the book and how it made you feel going all the way through to the end where it has pictures, but I'll get to the pictures in the end. Okay. Um, <laughs> you, pictures say so much. Obviously, for me being a photographer, I understand the quality and how pictures say more than a thousand words. And right. you put in those pictures in the book in the end gave me as an individual so much of a more of an insight to the character and why the book was written in the way it was written. But could you take us through the journey of your life and your family's life while you were writing this book? Okay, I think I'll start with my grandmother's um, life. So my grandmother um, in the book is named Inga. And in, in many ways, this is really more her story than mine. It, it's partly mine too, and it's partly my relationship with her. But I think that the life she lived was, you know, phenomenally interesting and also tragic at the same time. So she was raised in Frankfurt. They were from a very wealthy family. She had a younger sister named Rigmore. And Rigmore in her teens, probably around the same age around my daughter, and um, started showing signs of depression and mental illness. You know, my grandmother tried everything to help her. She researched, she brought her to different doctors. Um, and initially, I think her diagnosis was something like hysteria because everybody was told they had hysteria. And, you know, things weren't getting better overall. You know, she'd have good days, bad days, but there were more and more bad days. And they finally tried an institution in Germany. This was around 1936-ish. And at, in 1933 in Germany, the Nazis came out with their sterilization law and over 400,000 people were sterilized from 1934 to 1939. And they were sterilized for all sorts of things. I mean, they were sterilized if they were mentally ill, but they were also sterilized if they were, you know, had congenital blindness, congenital deafness. Um, sorry, my phone right. was... I love the way you said, oh, shit. <laughs> oh, did I? Did yeah. I swear? No, that's oh, all right. No. You're allowed to swear on it. It's fine. I can cut uh, it out. Don't worry. I can cut it out. It's okay. <laughs> I love it. No, it's, it's my daughter, Erica. She must have known I was talking about her. Anyway. <laughs> so back to, back to the fun topic of sterilization. <laughs> At this time in the world, right? There were eugenic societies all over the world. So it wasn't just Germany. Um, eugenics was, you know, it was, a, it was a study in, in some ways in biology. And it was just, it was, the, the term was coined in 1883 by Sir Francis uh, Galton. And the idea was, you know, to, yes, to purify the race and in a way, but it was also to get rid of diseases. So you know, the Nazis kind of took it to an obscene end. And it did begin with, you know, these sterilizations. Now, other countries were also sterilizing, but then nobody did it to the extreme that the, the Nazis did it. And the sterilization law led to um, their euthanasia law, which um, came at the very beginning of the law, at the very beginning of the war on purpose to sort of confuse people. So, it was sort of hidden because everybody was focused on the war. And then there were these six institutions in Germany, and one of them was where Rigmore was at, that built gas chambers and crematoriums. And that's where they killed the mental patients. And in many ways, this the killing of the mental patients and the pillaging of the bodies, it was the, it was the Nazis' opening act. 
the doctors from those institutions were the same doctors that went to the concentration camps and designed the gas chambers there. It, you know, so it's just done in a much larger scale. Yeah. Um, but a, a lot of people don't know about the, the gas chambers in the mental hospitals, you know, in the 19, at the end of 1939 when they started. It's, for me, reading it, I was like, wow. I, di- I didn't know, personally. I knew every, well, we were taught about it in school, but not to the depth that we should have, I believe. Well, it's pretty, it's pretty hard, I think, in school when you're younger. I mean, I think it's, you know, following the trajectory of the eugenics, it's fascinating. And it's fascinating to see how they took these ideas into something so absolutely horrific. Anyway, so back to my family a little bit. Um, you know, Rigmore didn't fare well in in Germany. And my grandmother ended up fleeing Germany with my mother and they went to Switzerland. And I think what happened to my grandmother is when that part of her life was over, she really closed it off. You know, she put it in a compartment and didn't think about it because it was just so painful. She lost everything. She lost her sister. She lost her social status, you know, and So I think she then began to live in this very kind of small, rigid and controlled way. I mean, she was very controlling. For example, the clocks in her house all had to go off at exactly the same time every day. And there's not, that's not a big deal, but it was just a sign of trying to control what she had no control over. Right. I mean, she had no control over these events that happened in Nazi Germany. So what she could control is, how her, her grandchildren um, held their fork properly at the table, right? So, you know, she was very strict about manners and about appearance. And, and this also kind of goes back to Germany. I mean, the appearance, we had to appear physically and mentally fine all of the time, right? And I mean, it's because of what happened to her. And, you know, I didn't, Growing up, I found her very difficult at times. I mean, she was very critical of my hair and a number of other things. But um, <laughs> but anyway, you know, it wasn't until this sort of breakthrough of me going into the hospital and her sort of revealing what had happened in her past that we really grew to understand each other. I mean, I understood finally her fears and and the writing process does that as well because when you're writing from a character's point of view i mean you really have to dig deep to try to understand them and you know i i had hundreds of old letters she had written to me i i used some of those then i i I tried to write letters from her point of view you know as if she was telling me her story so you know you get you, you just kind of go deeper and deeper until you really feel like you understand them and you understand their reasons. And um, that was a really fascinating part of the process for me. How do you feel about generation of women today who have given up their children because of mental health? How do you think things have changed from the 1930s to today when it comes to women having mental illnesses, but still giving up their children because they feel that that would be a better option? Um, Yeah, I I don't know anybody who's, but I'm sure there are people who give up their children because they might not feel well enough to take care of them. Um, Certainly things have changed, I think, obviously for the better. I mean, I often have wondered about um, my great aunt Rigmore, if she would have she wasn't my great aunt. She was my, yes, she was. She's my great aunt. Sorry. Um, you know, medicine has come a long way, especially for things like depression. So that's certainly extremely helpful. Um, uh, it's funny, the word his, hysteria, right? I mean, you know, she was described as hysterical. I catch women and myself, like we stop ourselves now from using it. 
you know, because it's got such a negative connotation, you know, you're just being hysterical as, as if that's a something terrible that, that women do. And um, so I, I do, th I see this, certainly this forward movement and much more openness. There is still stigma though. I mean, yeah. undoubtedly there's still stigma around mental health, even, you know, as a school teacher, especially now we're having a lot of kids struggling with mental health issues and we have a great counseling department, but when they tell us, they tell the teachers or they need to talk to us about particular students, there's, there's still this hushedness about it, if that's a word, but yeah. it's still talked about a little bit as if it's a little bit shameful. So I still feel that. Yes. I think we've come a tremendous way both, you know, with medicine and with understanding and an openness about it, but we still have a ways to go. Yeah, that's true. Do you think that mental illness is inherited? I know that that's one of the things that you've spoken a little bit about before, but do you think all mental illness is inherited from our past generations? Well, that's, it's so, it's such a great question and it's, it's, hard to tease out exactly what's what, right? But in certainly in my family, I think there absolutely is a genetic component, inherited genetic component that I see in my children. Then there's another component that's environmental. And I think that played very strongly in my upbringing because there was a lot of, you know, there was a lot of secrecy. There was a lot of fear. And I certainly felt that as a child. And I think that made it more difficult for me. So, I mean, for me, there were, there were both. I think that's true for many people. You know, it's, it's hard to say, well, exactly, you know, how, what percentage is genetic and what percentage is environmental. Um, so something, you know, it's, it's fun to kind of like to wonder about that. And I think, yeah, when you brought up earlier, which is a great question, you know, what if my mother and grandmother had shared this story early on? What if our family would have been open about this? Would that have changed my path? I think it would have changed my path. Absolutely. I still think I would have had depression. I don't think I would have been in a hospital. I think I would have been treated at a much earlier age. Yeah. So here's one that ties into actually depression. So I talk a bit about forgiveness. Forgiveness is a word that a lot of people would like to give, but find it hard to give. So what does forgiveness mean to you? And do you feel like you have forgiven your mother or your grandmother for what has happened in the past and also how this affected you? So, yes, absolutely. Um, I, for me, I think forgiveness comes with empathy and understanding. Yes. And I think that it was huge for me to understand. Once you understand um, people's fears, I think almost more importantly than anything else, and you understand where those fears are coming from, then I think it's very easy to forgive because, you know, I'm sure there are people well, there, um, there are people who do things that are just simply mean and horrid and malicious, right? Yeah. But certainly in my family, you know, it was all well intended, right? And I, I mean, with most people and most, most families, you know, mothers in general, I remember learning this when I was a young mother, but mothers almost always, they're always trying their best. That's right? true. Yeah. And, you know, and I look at my mother, I mean, my mother tried her best. She absolutely did whatever she could yeah. sure she made mistakes i've made mistakes with my children and yeah i mean we i want to be able to model forgiveness you know for my students and for my children because i, I don't know i don't know how else to live i think it would be horrible to live and not to be able to forgive i mean i would think i would end up being an angry bitter person yes. and i'm not yeah. <laughs> that I definitely agree. So I want to know more about you, your spirituality. Okay. Okay. So 
you was given a gift. I don't think you could understand your gift at a young age and why it was given to you. But as you have grown older and evolved as the beautiful person that you have become, how do you feel your spirituality has changed you and also how it has let you impact with people and have a good intuition of people today? Um, that's, yeah, another great question. I, um, I do think I have uh, good intuition. I do think that many times children like me who are told they're oversensitive are people who really have empathy, you know, and they feel things too strongly, right? You feel others' feelings almost too strongly where it can be detrimental. Um, but I, I'm going to sort of go to a, a little bit of a different path here. So after I came out of McLean, that was a mental hospital I was in, I became, without depression, I became so much more curious and open to the world. And I met a friend and he told me about his mother and that she was psychic. Now I come from this long line of very scientific people in my family and we are not allowed to believe in such nonsense as psychics. So when he first told me, I was like, oh no, no, I don't believe in that. But then he told me some stories and of course I was curious and I finally went to see her and she she didn't read tarot cards, she read regular cards and those were actually playing cards were invented for fortune telling initially, which people don't know. And she was, she blew my mind. I mean, I could not believe the things she knew and the things she predicted. And I ended up becoming very close to her. And she was, she was my psychic for 30 years. She lived in the same town. I probably saw her like once a week. She died about a year ago. And when I think back to the things, some of the things she told me, and again, mostly things that, predictions of things that would happen, right? I, I mean, I, it, it's just absolutely amazing the detail at which, you know, she could predict and see things. And with her then, I began to slowly become more open to other things. You know, um, with mediums, I slowly started seeking out mediums. I was very curious. In fact, my daughter calls me the medium hunter. And, you know, I, I really, I had fun with that. I've met some frauds along the way. And that was interesting too. Like, why would anybody, I mean, is it purely for money that they do this? Like, so, and then slowly, I also began doing research into past lives and into, you know, children who remember past lives, which I think is, is fascinating as well. So I've just, I've had this wonderful path. I've had a number of different paths, right? So I, I've taught chemistry for over 25 years and I'm very fortunate to have a department um, who has, has actually sort of come along for the ride in this whole, you know, spiritual journey. And one of my colleagues actually went to Ireland with me to visit a medium and so we, we renamed ourselves the Science, Technology, and Paranormal Studies Department because, I like that. We, you know, we're very, you know, they're very open about it, too. And, it, and that's really the biggest lesson for me of all is just to be open and to be curious. You know, I'm, I'm always somewhat skeptical in terms of, you know, is this a real medium or not? You know, I was really fortunate to have this woman, Sophie, in my life and she was such a guide and a mentor and a, and a teacher in, in showing me that, you know, there are things that we do not understand that cannot be absolutely scientifically proved right now. One day, maybe we'll, we'll be able to, but you know, it's been a really great journey. I love that. Oh, that was so cool. How do you feel the next generation? will make a change in the world creatively, but also physically. I think this is so important against things like mental health, race, racism, equality. How do you feel, especially as a teacher, that the next generation will make a huge difference in the world? I think from what I see from my students, I, the change 
over the last 25 years in watching teenagers has been wonderful, really wonderful to see. And I know, you know, poor teenagers, they get kind of a bad reputation as, as being difficult, which of course they can be sometimes, but um, the openness of, of teenagers to people who are different is so completely different than it was. So we now, for example, we have what we call our special education population. They're in our schools. They used to be in a different school, right? So now they're in our schools. So they're, you know, they're integrated in our schools and sometimes in our classes. And when I watch teenagers, you know, they, they're just, they're so accepting of all the differences. And, you know, I remember also many years ago when we had our first gay couple come to a prom and it was such a big deal. And, you know, there was, and now, I mean, you look at it now, nobody would blink an eye. Like they, they are so accepting, right. Of those differences. And I love that about them. So I do have hope that what they'll be able to do, and especially, you know, it's been difficult with, you know, we've had a very divisive society and I'm hoping they will listen to the other sides and they will have this empathy for the other sides and they will begin to understand, you know, where the fears are, where other people's fears are. And once they understand that, then they can, again, move into a, a place of love and understanding. And I know I sound like an old hippie. I probably am an old hippie, but the idea Aww. is that I do think they can make that movement. And I yeah. think that that has to happen. I mean, we have so much blame and finger paint, pointing. Fing, I almost said finger painting. We should have finger painting. Okay. Mm-hmm. We should be painting. Like <laughs> but we have so much blame and finger pointing. You know, that has to stop. You know, we're not listening to each other. I'm, and I know I'm speaking in huge general, you know, general generals right now. And I don't mean to be. I just think that this next generation can improve that. I think so. I would like. I think. I think we're all part of it in some way. Right. What we pass down helps, and I always say that. I don't know how to say it in the correct way, but we're born into a family. Our family are our first self role models. What we learn from them kind of helps us expand to what then we learn from the outside world also. Right. And then we carry on with that. And then how we have a choice of whether or not what we see our parents do or our families do, we can either turn around and say, I'm going to be like my family or I'm going to go on my own path and make my own decisions and see things differently. And I think that's also a huge um, decision for us to make as we are growing up and being teenagers as well. Right. So I, I definitely like that. So what are you most proud of that you stand for as an individual? Oh, that's a great question. I, I think I am most proud of my ability to be open and honest about who I am, about how I feel in my just everyday relationships, right? Um, I mean, yes, that's part of what the book is also about. It's, yeah. it's you know, it's about me being open about my family and, and a lot of families, like I said at the beginning, you know, a lot of people have family secrets or their secrets in their families that cause shame. And I, I do think that I certainly have a reputation at school when there's a, a difficult conversation that has to take place. My principal or my colleagues normally say, oh, well, Sylvia will do it. We'll, we'll send Sylvia in to do that one. Or if there's a particular difficult parent, you know, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm proud of that. I'm proud that I've learned to be able to really listen and to, you know, to look for solutions not problems. Um, and you know, to be able to share that, Hey, you know, I've certainly had my fair share of problems. Raising daughters wasn't easy. 
I can um, imagine. Yeah. And as a teacher, that's kind of nice too, being the age I am now to be able to say, you know, I certainly understand, you know, you have a child who doesn't want to do homework. Um, I understand, you know? So yeah, I guess I am proud of my openness, which sometimes can get me into trouble. It's not a bad thing. It's not no, a bad thing at all. No. Trouble trouble is not always bad, Sylvia. Right. right. right? No, I agree. <laughs> so what was the hard one thing I did want to ask you about, and I know I'm asking you questions more about yourself right now, but there's right. something that popped in my mind and I just wanted to, to ask you the question. What was the hardest part in the book to write? Wow, that one, I'm, I don't, I don't know if there was, there wasn't a part that was necessarily particularly hard. I think what was the hardest thing for me in this book was sort of piecing it together because it goes yeah. back and forth. And I tried different things. Like once I wrote the whole story just chronologically, but it, it didn't work and it, it sort of had to go back and forth. But then I, it, it, would be really tricky to know when to switch back and forth. And I did longer chunks and then shorter chunks. So that in, in, as far as a writer, I think that was the hardest part to figure out. Um, there wasn't a particular scene or a particular character that I struggled with. I did struggle with the beginning. I, I kept coming up with new beginnings. I wasn't sure how to begin it. You know, sometimes you don't know the beginning until the end. I mean, that's true. Um, so when I really, when I really figured out the end, the beginning became more clear in, in so far as, you know, how to introduce the book and the characters. So yeah, that makes sense to me. Do you have a secret passion that you have never told anyone about? Mm. Well, that's an easy one to answer because Ooh. no. <laughs> and I'll tell you why. Because I've, I'm too open. So my passion really is like investigating the paranormal. And I haven't made it a secret. Just like other things I haven't made a secret, right? Being a mental hospital, I haven't made that a secret. That's true. And, and those things in my family, you know, the belief in the paranormal and being in a mental hospital, those were shameful things in my family, you know? And I have said, I'm not going to be ashamed and I'm going to go out there and talk about them and learn about them and be open about them. See, I like that. I like the fact that you're so open about it. And Sylvia's so chilled out, guys. Oh, if you see yeah. Sylvia right now, she's just chilling out. <laughs> she's just chilling out and it's, it's nice. It's refreshing. Oh, thank you. It's refreshing. Okay, here's one for you. Okay. What, do you what do you believe stands between you and complete happiness. I think there are still things that I, and they're mostly from my family. You know, they're mostly from, and, and again, this is not blaming my family, but I think there are things that I still have to let go of. Um, for example, I mean, my family is very, very intellectual and my yeah. uncle's a knight in England. He was knighted for his work in genetics. And my father was a well-known theoretical nuclear physicist. I, I mean, my doctor, my, my family's full of doctors and scientists. And I, I, still, I still hold on to a little bit of I'm not quite smart enough. I haven't really done quite enough. I, I'm not as intellectually... Um, admired as people in my family. And once you let go of the, you know, and I still, it's not there all the time, but every once in a while, you know how you feel those little things, those little pricks inside of you. You're like, Oh God, that, that felt yucky. I just felt ashamed and stupid. So I, I, I still think I have to let go of some of those ideas that came from childhood. I'm actually thinking about that now, actually, you've made me think. It is hard. It's not easy. No. And I and I think I think we think the most at nighttime. Right. For me, for me personally, 
I think the most at night time, I think that's when those little pokes start to come in and especially when you're by yourself. And I've learned to overcome them by embracing them. Right. Um, and I think that's the my advice to anyone would be to embrace what you think are faults and try to see every imperfection within you as a perfection in its goodness. Right. If that if that makes any sense. It, it does. Right? Cuz that, that is really how you let go by it, it's it's it it makes total sense to me. Now I'm going to say something that might not make sense, but really the the way you let go is by embracing. You know, yeah. it, it seems contradictory, but it's not. Like I understand it. Yeah. Yeah, if you can really embrace those flaws, then you can let go of them. You know, if you just accept them instead of fighting against them. So when you're always fighting against those things that bother you about you, you know, it, it, it is harder to let them go. And I think, yeah. you know, yeah. we all, we all have things that we worry about ourselves. We, we, we have to have flaws. Otherwise we wouldn't be human. That's true. When was the last time you felt totally at peace with yourself? When was the last time I felt totally at peace with myself? Gosh, I I know it. It's with my newest granddaughter, and oh. and there and I think that the gift of children is so amazing, right? Um, and a, a, you know, she is a particularly. They're all happy, delicious, beautiful little kids, but. This, this new one, Neve the new, I call her, um, she's particularly joyful and she makes um, these crazy squealing sounds. Sometimes she sounds like really a sick bird. I mean, they're, they're weird sounds. I've never heard a baby. I mean, I've heard babies like goo goo gaga, but I've never heard a baby make these kind of noises. But what happens with children and with babies is you're so invested in them in the moment. There is not, there's nothing else but them. And I really feel that more as a grandmother than I felt it as a mother. I did feel it as a mother. You know, you love watching your kids and, you know, they sort of, they keep you alive in the moment. But as a grandmother, it's even maybe age has helped with that you know I feel like it's even more prominent like I really really truly live in the moment when I'm with those children and and the little one is is just just has this gift of joy that's tremendous yeah no that is true what is the best advice you have ever received from somebody and how has that helped you best advice I know it's hard it's that is well I've I've received a lot of great advice and a lot of bad advice, right? Oh, okay. Um, oh my gosh, okay. I don't. Can know we have one of both? So can we have one great advice and one really bad advice, and then we can compare them? Oh gosh, now you just <laughs> made it a really difficult <laughs> question. I feel like I'm in my advanced placement chemistry class that I teach, and I really don't know what the answer is. Um, I think. I think one of the best pieces, there are a couple, I, actually now I have a couple. Um, one of the best pieces is, you know, you know, if you don't succeed at something, you, you keep trying and you keep trying and you try harder and you try harder and then you have to try differently, you know? Yes. So it, it, you don't go right to try differently, right? You, you keep trying harder before you have to switch and try differently. And that's been really helpful. I think another piece and so just a really important piece for me is, is not to compare. Now it's impossible. Yes. You know, we do it by, you know, we just compare ourselves, you know, we're thinner, we're richer, we're whatever, right? We're dumber, we're smarter. But I think comparing yourself or living in a way that you're always comparing yourself to either feel better or worse is the way to lose yourself. So your true self has to come not from comparing yourself to others, but from, from really 
who you are and what you believe. So I, I do pass that on to my children and my students. Like, try, try to catch yourself when you're comparing and try to sort of ask yourself, do I need this because I don't feel good enough about myself? Do I need to feel better than this person? You know, because I got a better grade on the test. I mean, what difference does it make if, you know, I got an 86 and he got a 73? Why should that make me feel better? You know, so so I try to bring that into lessons because I, I do feel that's very important, you know, because it's so easy to do. And, and the more you do it, the more you lose your sense of self. That's true. That is definitely true. My next one for you is more about advice. And this is important. Okay. So if I was to say to you, Sylvia, what advice would you give to anybody who has been on a difficult path? Because I'm sure in our lives we all have. And we all deal with things differently, being sensitive, some of us being angry or having depression or anxiety. And I've spoken about this before with so many other people. But what would your advice be to people about if they're in a difficult place right now, how can they uplift themselves by supporting themselves? Because we don't always need support from someone else. Because I feel like sometimes when we have support from someone else, that's a bonus in our lives. But it's more about supporting ourselves with the support that we have and the courage we have within ourselves because I believe that's a place to start. What advice would you give to people about being more optimistic and positive and no matter what comes your way, how to deal with it? So I think one thing, certainly with depression, is one of the side effects of depression is that you feel pretty hopeless, right? Mm-hmm. And there's a, a that sense of hopelessness. And one thing I have done is I remind myself that that, is a a feeling and a side effect, but not the reality. It's never without hope. You know, there's always hope. And sometimes you have to, you have to tell your brain and remind your brain of that. Even when you feel hopeless, you just have to sort of say, well, but it's not hopeless. And obviously there's, there's a lot of help out there. You might not find the right help, with the right person right away. It doesn't have, again, it doesn't happen easily. You have to keep trying. And then sometimes you have to try differently. That's true. That is definitely true. So what would you like your legacy to be? Because this is a question I love to ask everyone. What would you like your legacy to be when you feel, and only when you feel that you have done enough in the world, enough and your best in the world, how would you like people to remember you? as accepting, as someone that loves easily and, 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 and large. I, you know, I, I, I love almost everyone I meet. And that's really true. Like I made fun of at school all the time because, you know, everybody's like, well, how's your new class when we start a new semester? I'm like, oh my God, they're the best kids I've ever had. They're adorable. I love them. And they're like, but you say that all the time. I'm like, yeah, because I feel that all the time. So I, I do. I, I hope I'm accepting. I think you are. Oh, thank you. You came, you came on and you instantly accepted me. So I was like, oh, this is cool. This How is could somebody be not accept you? Well, I, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> that would be crazy. Oh. <laughs> You are one of the most. You are one of the most lovingest people I've ever had on a podcast, and oh, that's you. no word of a lie. <laughs> <laughs> see, that's why I love teachers because they just see the best in you. No matter if you feel like you're falling flat on your face, a teacher will always pick you up and find the best in you. Good teachers, right? I, I was just going <laughs> to yeah. say, good, good teachers, teachers right? and that's right. what teachers should be doing. You're absolutely right. I mean, if and I've listen, I've taught long enough and the people who don't last, it's not because they're not good at the subject. It's because they don't really love being with the kids. Mm. That's the first thing you have to love being with them and having relationships with them. And if you don't, 
it's not the right fit. That's true. That is definitely true. I have two more for you. Okay. And my second to last one is because this, I've embraced every single word you have said to me on this interview. Oh, but thank you. How would you like, what would you like people to take away from your book, knowing that you have put so much into writing it and making it come to life? What would you like the reader or the listener, as we have audio books now, to take away from what they've read within your book? Um, I think that, you know, and I've sort of said this in different ways, but for me, it's understanding that we all have family secrets and shame and things we're afraid of and that we can get past it by really sitting down with the other person, whoever that may be, and understanding their fears and having empathy. And with empathy, I think, comes love. And to me, that's the ultimate gift of living in this world. Sylvia, my final question for you is, where can we find you on all your social medias? And if anybody would like to buy your book or get in contact with you, like I've had the privilege to tonight, where can they find you? So I have a website at sylviatrue.com, but it's easy. Um, the books are sold everywhere. You can Google. If you go on my uh, author Facebook page, if you message me, I'll message you right back. I um you know, I, I love to connect with people. That's what I love to do. That's what I've done my whole life. See, Sylvia, thank you so much oh, thank for taking you. your time to come on the Ask People podcast. I'm, I'll say it again. I've enjoyed every single moment of having you on there. So thank you so much. Well, thank you. I, you have amazing questions. They're difficult at times. I was like, whoa. <laughs> Not sure. I... I'm going to have to go back and write them all down and like start asking my friends and my students. I'm like, oh, how would you have answered this one? Because it's really That's, just yeah. fun. It was very <laughs> enlightening for me. You know, like, oh. you make me think. So, but I, yeah, I definitely think it's nice to make people think. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. See, I go shy when people say nice things. So <laughs> this is where I'm going to say my outro. <laughs> so, Sylvia, thank you again. And guys, thank you. Oh, it was welcome. such a pleasure. Really, truly pleasure. Oh, you're the best. Guys. You are. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> guys, thank you so much for listening to the Ask People podcast and please remember you can subscribe and leave us a review on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play and any other platform that you prefer listening to. Please also follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and you can also donate to the Ask People podcast by simply going to the Savio Rocks website or just typing in paypal.me forward slash us people podcast. Guys, thank you so much for listening. Stay happy, stay positive and as always, please continue to be kind to one another. How was the interview for you, okay? That was wonderful. It was so much fun. How have you had a lot of interviews? Um, I've had a few. You've been the best. Um, because some of them, I don't know, they, they feel a little stiff. It depends on the, it really, it's so interesting. Like some people are just naturally like warmer, more curious. Like you're very curious about, mm -hmm. yeah, the book, but you're really curious about the person you're talking to. And that is what makes it work. It's, yeah. you know, it's the dynamic between the people. And some of some people are just not as curious. And you are. And you're very warm. So the combination is great. For me, I could go all night.
Everything you do 